Test. Sue Dumford, can you hear me? Test. Good. The Lord be with you. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, Sue. I want to make sure my mic wasn't... This morning I tested it the first time ago. It did the thing like in the glory days when I said test. It goes wee really loud. <laughs> so I just spare you from that. A couple quick announcements. Uh, Lay Theology Conference coming up in a couple weeks. That's 8 a.m. to noon. You can register in the week at a glance uh, or off the church's website. We've got like... 50 people signed up for that already, which is great. Um, really pushing that hard with our, with our school and, and a great opportunity to invite somebody to, to church um, for very low, obviously low commitment, um, kind of navigating our life with screens. So it it's, looks like it's going to be a fun, a fun conference. If you'd like to volunteer, we're, we're going to need some, some help with child care for that, so for babysitters. So if you'd like to, to chip in a little bit and help, please let me know or talk, talk to Stephanie Ryan. She in her? Somewhere? No? Oh, figure out who she is and then talk to her. There she is. Stephanie Ryan. Talk to Stephanie if you'd like to volunteer in any capacity, Lay Theology Conference. Uh, Church Family Sunday is coming up on February 11th at 9.30. So every year we try to hit church where we combine the services into one service uh, at 9.30, four times a year, once a, once a quarter. Uh, the, so our next quarterly one is coming up on Transfiguration Sunday, which is February 11th. So we'll, we'll be keeping you, keeping you aware of that. And last, our youth are doing an open mic night as a fundraiser coming up on Saturday, this coming Saturday already at 6.30. So uh, any any uh, any acts are, are welcome. So you can sign up through that through the through the week at a glance link, or also on the church website. Talk to Pastor Barton's if you have any questions there. Be sure to get your giving statements from the Welcome Center on the way out. Rise, you know, trying to not subsidize the federal government with buying stamps. So anything we can do to stick it to the government. All right. So Luke twenty three. Uh, so today we're going to be, we're going to pick up where we left off last time, but I, I wanted to, um, I want, before we jump into that, lest I get too much progress in my Bible study, uh, I want to talk about today's um, gospel lesson, because um, the, I think it's so helpful for, for us as the Lord's Church to, to think about these things, um, and I, you just can't do it in a sermon, because so the sermon is not trying to teach you, a, it's not trying to, so we got the congregation there, and the sermon is not trying to tell people about how to do stuff at church. In other words, it's not a doctrinal presentation about how theology works. That's not the purpose of the sermon. It might be in some church bodies, but, but not in ours. The purpose of the sermon is to apply the, the gospel text to the people by both law and gospel. So yeah, there's going to be opportunity to, to explain some of the how and some of the why and the theology, but it's not, it's not, it's not for that. It's not the primary purpose. Um, so in other words, it's, it's Ezekiel before the Valley of Dry Bones, proclaiming the Lord's word that brings life to the people. And yet there's times like this Sunday's gospel lesson where it's helpful for, for the church to kind of reflect on the how behind this. And it's specifically this, this work of evangelism where the Lord calls people into his church. And 
Um, we often, I think both by way of uh, just our, our regular experience in, the, in a, the, the world of capitalism with where we're impacted by marketing and so we're, we're persuaded to buy things and we have to persuade in order to sell things. And also our regular experience of fishing where we fish with bait and switch. That's the way that we fish. But that is not what Jesus has in mind when he calls specifically the disciples who are fishermen to be fishers of men. It was a specific choice. He could have chosen a lot of different kinds of people. He chose fishermen because it, it's funny, like, like when, I, when I, I know I told this story, I can't remember where I was, but the, uh, in Colorado, when you're fly fishing, the, so trout, believe it or not, are very smart. Apparently it goes like humans, monkeys, trout, <laughs> I don't know. They're, I guess they're smart, whatever. So they can see you. And, and so they're really, so they're, but they're only, they're finicky and they only bite certain things at certain times of the year. So like you've got your special, like the line that floats, but that's not, you, the, the fish can't see that. It'll scare them. So there's like a long tapered down line that goes down to like almost nothing with a tiny little fly. If there happen to be biting flies, if they're biting eggs, you got to have like an egg thing that's like at the right depth. And the whole thing is trying to, obviously the trout don't want to, have a hook jam them in the face and be eaten and later, right? So that you have to, you have to bait and switch. So you disguise the actual thing and give them something else. Then you do what you want to do with them later. So that's, that's our experience of fishing. And if, and if a particular bait isn't working, you change the bait. You change the depth. Like that, that kind of idea. With, with these fishermen, like... When I go fishing with my children, this is like every time I say, okay, remember, we don't want to hit the water because it scares the fish away. And then right away, before anything, before I can finish a sentence, a certain child is smacking, that's what the pole is for, right? Smacking the water as hard as possible. Like, okay, we're not going to catch anything. So you don't disturb the water. But when you're net fishing, you necessarily what? Disturb the water. You just throw it in. You don't care about the disturbing of the water and you just troll around and you catch whatever's there. Sometimes you catch a lot. Sometimes you catch nothing. And as Jesus made very clear in, in the other gospels, as he's the one who actually can determine what, when you catch fish. Because remember the one night Peter's out fishing all night long, we caught nothing. And then Jesus says, just drop your net in the water and the nets fill up. Jesus is in charge of the catch, both by way of real fish and most importantly in our context, evangelism when it comes to pro proclaiming the gospel. So the church kind of, we can't see ourselves as, I know, I know God, God, I know God died, Jesus died for my sins and he says he works faith when and where he pleases. But really he's up in heaven in a, in a lazy boy recliner. And if I don't get to it, if I don't do it, if I don't say the right thing to my child who's wandered off or my neighbor or whatever the, whatever the fill in the blank there, as, the, as though it's up to you. And God's like, well, I'm gonna wash my hands from that. It's up to you. You better get on it, right? That's not the picture at all. It is the Lord's gift to give. He's the one who works repentance and faith in his way and his time. He certainly, he has chosen to work through the preached word, both by way of Jonah I mean, think about Jonah. It's, I didn't dwell on it too much in the sermon, but like you have an entire nation of people. I mean, Assyria, Nineveh was just famous for their false worship of false gods and the just total evil society. 
And, Nineveh, and, and Jonah didn't even care. It wasn't like he made a convincing argument. He wasn't using like carefully fashioned natural law arguments that he worked his way through the council and finally got billboards up on the side of the street that said, whatever billboards say in Missouri that tries to repent, repent people. He didn't say that. He just like walked through. He said, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And what happens? The entire nation repents. So think about the impact then that you are able to have by simply praying for Afghanistan, Russia, Hamas, that the Lord would turn their hearts and bring faith. Um, for your neighbors, for your family, for those who have wandered from the faith, that we, we pray that the Lord would, would bring about repentance and faith. And if you're given the opportunity, that he would give you the words to speak, right? But even then, he's going to give you the words just fine because Jonah, Jonah wasn't like studying up on his, when he was en route to Nineveh, he didn't have like all of his books on like, you know, natural law arguments for the creation story or whatever, he was kind of, he didn't have a lot of light in the boat that he was in, inside of a fish, right? So he just shows up and he says, repent, and God does the thing. So that's a, it's, a, it's a comfort for us in the Lord's church that we're, are, we are to be faithful. We proclaim the gospel, the, the Lord's word, which is the law and the gospel, the law toward the gospel, and the Lord brings about his repentance. Yeah, Gerard. Reverend Lover, I just, I think it's important to consider that, this, that distinction of the techniques used by evangelicals, Joel Osteen types, the idea of sort of bait and switch theology, church growth movement is different than just preaching the word. And it's an important distinction for us about how we go about our business. I'm always enamored by the last chapter of John where they've been fishing all night on Lake Gennesaret and the risen Lord is there, throw down your net. And what happens after this? You don't like there's nothing at the word of the Lord. The harvest is there and the nets are filled and breaking. And then what do they do? They have fish sandwiches, as we all know. <laughs> Jesus' favorite meal. Right. Well, so the, I mean, I thank you for that. Because so we, we, don't, we don't hear the language as much as you did perhaps in the 90s, uh, early 2000s, what was called the church growth movement. Even the proponents of the church growth movement have, have kind of changed their strategies. But the idea behind the church growth movement is seeing humans as free agents in a transaction where we're trying to sell our product. And if it's not, like if we're, we're wanting to sell more, we need to adjust the, the way we're packaging the product or perhaps even the product itself. But, but the, the implicit doctrinal like problem there is it assumes that the, the, the human is a free agent and, and it has the free will to choose Jesus as if there's two alternatives, door number one and door number two, and you're trying, you're up there trying to sell door number two or whatever, right? That's not the biblical picture ever. It's, and in fact, the only time it shows up is like in the Old Testament, is it um, uh, uh, Joshua when he's like, choose who you will serve this day. For me and my house will serve the Lord. Even then, it's like the, the context doesn't make it into our readings. Who's heard that text? For me and my house will serve the Lord. Choose for yourself who you serve this day, right? Well, the context is he says, well, you've got Egypt. And everything went very, very bad for them. Everyone died. They were destroyed by the plagues. 
God, so they wandered from God and God destroyed them. God's people, God preserved. He led them out of slavery. He brought them redemption. There's not a, ch- and then he says, for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. That's not a choice. It wasn't like, that's, well, let me think, hold on, let me think. Do I want to be destroyed or do I want God to take care of? Wasn't a, he was not asking you to actually choose. He's simply pointing out the way of life and the way of death. Uh, so when, the, so for, when it comes to like Christian, Christian conversations and in our, in our regular day-to-day conversation with our neighbor, the Lord might see fit to work through your words to bring about repentance and faith in those people in your life. And it isn't necessarily a winsome thing. Again, fishermen, they weren't, they weren't like, the, they weren't Pharisees who were like heavily studying this stuff. God gave them the words to say and, and put, the, put them where he wanted them at the time. And he accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. So then we're able to say at the end of the day, we don't look at the numbers and say, hey, we're doing great because look at the numbers. But rather we say, hey, we're doing great because we're being faithful. We're preaching God's word in the way that he has said to preach it. And he sometimes fills the nets and sometimes not. But we, but we can rest assured that we've done, our, we've done our duty. And I mentioned this to the teachers this past week, like especially when it comes to net fishing, you're not like, the, the, as long as we're alive, as long as the church is still on this earth, we are, we're still trolling the nets, you know? It's not, like, it's not like we threw the net, we pulled it in, we didn't catch anything unless we're done. So you can just give up on your loved ones or whoever it is you're praying for. Like to, so we're, no, the, the, the net's still in the water. Um, but in, and yet it belongs to the Lord. He's the, he's the primary fisherman and we're not, trying to, we're not trying to bait and switch. We're not trying to manipulate. We're not, we're not even mindful. I mean, I guess we're mindful in a sense, but like the goal of worship is not trying to entertain because you can get better entertainment somewhere else. Like if you want to actually pay some money and watch something that actually is exciting from an entertainment perspective, you're not coming to church for that. That's not the goal of church. But church, sometimes churches would say, yeah, but if we could, find, if we could get close to the, to the concert that people are paying to go see, then we can really bring them in. No, that has again the human as, this, as though our sin, our, our sin hasn't corrupted our decision-making. But the fact that sin has corrupted our decision-making and we, we would prefer to choose evil. We would pr- prefer to choose, no, no one seeks after God. Uh, you, you haven't chosen me, I chose you. Over and over in this, that's a clear th- theme of the scripture. So if we come to church and we are confessing simply to God our brokenness and he forgives us and he gives us the gift of faith and life and then sends us out to serve our neighbor of freedom and joy. And we fail and he calls us back and he did again and again our whole life, right? Totally different picture, but that's why when you think, it's, it's really helpful to have this in the back of your mind when you, whether you're watching the Joel Osteen that, that Gerhard mentioned earlier, or um, when you go to like your, your cousin's church down the street or, or whatever, and you think, why is worship, the worship experience is so different. Like cl- classic, you come in, you sing a song, and then all the children are, are sent away. And it's just the adults because children are annoying. Jesus said, let the little children go away. <laughs> they are, for they are noisy and distracting. <laughs> no, 
That's not what he says at all. But, so the, but if, the, if the purpose of worship is me trying to sell you on something, I need you to be able to pay attention to me. I, I can't like persuade you if you're trying to juggle an infant or a toddler. So we need to get the kids out of here so we can, like, we can dig in deeper academically. Again, academic focus is great. We're do, you're doing it now. Where are the children? Most of them. <laughs> and so we can have this conversation. That is the point of this conversation, but it's not the purpose of the pulpit. It's not the purpose of worship, right? Uh, but if the purpose is for me trying to, also when it comes to emotions, manipulating emotions, like our hymnody, sometimes hymns will actually hit you in a particular way. Like the hymn that, hymns that were sung at, like, at, your, at, your, at your spouse's funeral or your parents' funeral or whatever the case might be, they hit you emotionally. And there's nostalgia in another hymnody. And, but that, the goal is not to bring about an emotional experience. That just happens because the theology is itself emotional for whatever reason. God's given me eternal life in the face of death. But the goal is not emotional manipulation. Um, but we are, we're also mindful that we, we, can, we want to not get in our own way so we don't do... We're, we're mindful of like the hymns, for example, that the congregation knows and doesn't know as well. We carefully try to balance those off. So we try to begin and end with familiarity. We put the most unfamiliar in the middle so you have time to forget how mad you were at pastor by the end, right? That's the strategy. It's intentional. <laughs> so, like, but it's, all, it's what we're confessing. It's what's being sung. It's what's being heard. And we're not trying to sell you on anything, but we're just giving life into death. So that's, that's the picture behind casting nets. That's the picture behind the way we do evangelism and our worship. Any questions on that? Nothing to do with Luke 23 necessarily, except for where Luke 23, we're, getting, we're about to step into the, the crucifixion itself. So we have what is won on the cross through the death of Jesus is in fact delivered through the proclamation of the word. It is handed, it's doled out. So what Jesus does on the cross by his death for all humanity, he then takes that up and he has his apostles pass it out through word and sacrament, which is the life of the church, the ongoing giving out of those gifts. Luke 23, Jesus before Pilate. We started this last week, but just to kind of catch us up, Luke 23, verse 1, we have the order of Jesus before Annas, Caiaphas, Pilate, Herod, Pilate again, and then he's finally handed over to death. So verse 1. The whole company of them arose, them being the Jewish council, and brought them before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Not true. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. So they're, they're, they're making up lies about him, and the lies that they're making up are not the reason why they wanted to kill him to begin with. Their big thing is that he's... He's calling himself the Messiah, but that's not going to get him killed. They can't kill him. They need Rome to do it. So they're trying to give Pilate an excuse uh, to kill him. So Pilate asked, are you the king of the Jews? So it doesn't say, we don't have a lot of like modifiers there on ask. So it could have been, he asked with contempt, with cynicism maybe with awe. I mean, it doesn't say. So you can picture him, picture him saying these things in different ways. So, are you the king of the Jews? Or are you the king of the Jews? Like just like, or even maybe a mix of both. Surely at this point, he's heard of what's, 
what's happening out there. I think the movie, the, the, the TV show, The Chosen, captures this, the, 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 the ongoing awareness of the local leadership to what's happening, this growing popularity of Jesus and people are coming. There's all these random people. There's miracles that are happening. They're certainly taking notice of this. So it's not just some random guy, but it's this guy who's got all these reputations. And he answered him, you have said so. So then Jesus flips it on him. He's having a conversation with Pilate who doesn't like the Jews. He doesn't want to be wasting his time with this little guy. That you, uh, are you the king of the Jews? Well, you, you said so. And now it like dawns on Pilate, I'm having a conversation with this guy about something I don't even, I don't even care to talk about. He's, not, he's clearly not trying to call himself a king. I, why am I wasting my time? Why am I giving legitimacy to this argument by talking to you? Get out of here. Then Pilate says to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. So the, the, this is, by the way, it's the first time the crowds start to get involved. So it's, remember it had been night, so now it's like early in the morning, and now we've got the crowds involved. Pilate turns to the chief priests and whatever crowd is gathered there. I find no guilt in this man. So Pilate sees innocence, and yet he's going to allow him to be beaten and then murdered. But they were urgent, so they increased their accusations, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. And at that, Pilate says, ah, Galilee, you say? How much time was he spending in Galilee? If you spend 50, 51% of your time in Indiana, you're technically an Indiana resident, right? Or however that law works with taxes. <laughs> so he's a, he's a Galilean resident. This is somebody else's problem. I don't have to make a decision here because if I kill Jesus and I'm in trouble, if I don't kill Jesus, I'm in trouble. I don't know what to do. Let's let the guy who's in charge of Galilee do it. Okay. And that's what's happening here with him, sending him to Herod where we have our, where we left off last time. Verse six, when Pilate heard this, that Jesus is from Galilee, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And that's, in fact, where Jesus had been, had been raised. Galilee is not under Pilate's jurisdiction, but it's under Herod. And uh, Pilate didn't want to be a part of this condemnation of an innocent man. So when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. So Herod, even though he's in charge of Galilee, he had come down to Jerusalem for the Passover, right? So everybody's down there. And this, by the way, is, not, is, is uh, Herod Antipas, who's son, the son of Herod the Great. So the famous Herod from the, the Magi narrative of, of Jesus, that's this guy's dad. So this particular Herod, Herod Antipas was tetrarch from 4 to 39, 34 AD. I can't tell if that's a 4 or a 9 in my notes. Somewhere between 34 and 39. Uh, he was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. Remember when, John, when this Herod had John the Baptist beheaded because of the whole thing with Herodias and John the Baptist had accused the, the whole, like you can't have, a, you can't have a, an, an affair with your brother's wife and ultimately has John the Baptist beheaded. And then later when, John, when Jesus is up doing miracles, Herod starts to think maybe it's, he was afraid because he thought, Je, he thought John the Baptist had risen from the dead. So we know that Herod's heard about Jesus and he's associating him, especially with 
with miracles because that's why he thought John the Baptist had resurrected. So he's excited to see him and he associates him with the same, the same way he associated with John the Baptist. Remember how he's excited? He, liked, he let John the Baptist come close. He seemed to be somewhat entertained by the preaching of John the Baptist in some way. Um, so he's excited, to, he's excited to see Jesus and maybe hoping that he would perform, perform some miracles. So Herod questions Jesus at some length, verse 9, but he made no answer. Like a sheep before his shears is silent, Isaiah 53, he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes, the Jewish council, stood by. Now, they had sent Jesus from, from Pontius Pilate to Herod, which arguably wasn't very far. They're all in the same kind of area. So I don't know if it's like across the hallway or but anyway, the, the whole crowd is like evil groupies who are following Jesus around, yelling threats, making fun of Jesus the whole time. They, they stood by, still vehemently accusing him. So this is just a side note here. The chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees, in contrast to Jesus, they're always, the, the, they're always associated with the preaching of the law. And the law always accuses. Even now, they're vehemently accusing him. So those who know the law and thrive by the law and think they live by the law are clinging to the law even here. And it is the law that they're using to try to get Jesus on the cross. Uh, verse 11, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arraying him in splendid clothing, making a mockery of him being a king, some kind of royalty sends him back to Pilate. So to, to not punish him and to send him back to Pilate is to say what? Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. I don't find any, I don't find any problem in this. No, no guilt in this, in this man. So he sends him back. He sees, when you think about it from, from Herod's perspective, he had these high hopes maybe. And he's, this Jesus walks in and he's just quiet and he's beaten. I mean, it's not just like, friendly buddy Jesus wearing his like nice suit and looking all prim and proper and just he's choosing to be quiet. He's probably bleeding all over the place. He's been beating, he's been beaten continuously. So he's like swollen and bleeding and bruised and, and he's just kind of sitting there. He's tied up and they're, they're, they're all these crowds around him making fun of him and he's, he's like, can't even speak up for himself. So Herod's like, what are we doing with this guy? He said, get him out of here. One of the questions I have in your handout there, Herod had heard of Jesus earlier, even had feared John the Baptist, uh, whom he killed, had risen from the dead. He is highly disappointed at Jesus' failure to perform signs. Like Herod, we often want Jesus on our terms to do the signs we desire, that he would prove his existence and that he would prove his divinity and his, his love for us. And yet Jesus is focused on the cross. That is where his love would be made known. So we can see while we can be, certainly be frustrated with the actions of, of Herod here, we, we very often make the same, we can fall, the devil tempts us to fall into the same way of thinking. That if there is a God, if Jesus is true God, then he will X, Y, Z, solve this problem. If he loves me after all, for God so loved the world, if he loves me, then surely he'll take away the cancer or he'll whatever, solve whatever this issue is. And that's, that's never what Jesus was saying to be about. In fact, we know the love of God is seen for us on the cross. So we don't look to miraculous signs of Jesus for any kind of verification or proof of his love for us. We look to the cross for, 
for the evidence of his love for us. But Herod, we're, we can kind of associate with Herod here. We're like, well, if he's Jesus, let's sh- show, me a, show me a trick. I, always, I remember this from my, like my sophomore year of high school. I went to this like Baptist school down in Mississippi and um, we had these speakers every week for chapel and they're always trying to get you to make a decision for Jesus and that whole, that whole thing. Um, so the, the personal testimony this guy gave was like he was, he was like, he was an atheist. He was a non-believer at the time. And he heard the gospel. And he started thinking about turning from his life of sin. And he wasn't quite sure. And finally, he just prayed, uh, Lord, give me a sign. And he was out in the woods and he saw a deer. And that's how he knew that God exists. So I'm like, oh, I'm glad a deer showed up, I guess. But that's like, so to say, I want, I want God to come down and prove himself to me. Because ultimately, I'm in charge of God. I set the rules here, God. Right? So if you're really God, then, do, then, then, then do, bow down to me. If you are the son of God, says the devil. If you are the Christ, then X, Y, and Z. So we're trying to, make, trying to be, have God bend to our demands. Take away the cancer, bring about healing or whatever, and that's simply not the way. Jesus, we, you should know that your Lord Jesus loves you in spite of the trials that you're facing. In fact, it is because of the trials that you're facing that he went to the cross. He loves you. That's why he, he died for you. And he might allow this, he might bring about miraculous recovery. And so we certainly can pray for that. But don't think his existence or his love for you hinges on that. Because he might very well say, you know what, this cancer is going to lead to death, but it's okay because I've taken care of that problem. Uh, I'm going to choose to use this to bring you home. Right? But let's not fall, let's not turn into Herod's and, and try to make God do what we want him to do like he's a vending machine or something. Uh, so, verse 9. Oh, no, I already get all that. Good. So then he goes back to Pilate. Verse 11. Herod with his soldiers treated with contempt, mocked him, splendid clothing, sends him back to Pilate. Verse 12. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, they had been at enmity with, with each other. Now, the text isn't clear. I mean, some of the commentators and historians suppose that perhaps they don't like each other. Remember, Herod is working for Rome. He's Jewish. Uh, so he's a local guy, but he's working for Rome. So he's still kind of like a dirty traitor from the Jewish perspective. Whereas Pilate's like full-blown pagan Roman. So, but if, if Herod's getting paid off by Rome, maybe he's, he, he would be already in cahoots with Pilate. So the, the most interesting comment I saw was that perhaps it had something to do with the incident from Luke 13, 1, when you've got uh, Pontius Pilate had a bunch of guys slaughtered on the altar in Jerusalem, which would have certainly defamed the altar and brought great shame to, to Jerusalem, to the Jews. But that would have been like on Herod's, on, on, like Herod's jurisdiction. So Pilate's like stepping in, slaughtering Jews on the altar. And, and so it created maybe this conflict and certainly created major problems for Herod because now the people are getting mad at Pilate. Herod's trying to stand in between. Herod ultimately represents Pilate because he's working for Rome and he can kind of see both sides. So maybe there's some animosity there. But in any case, now because of the, the irony here, it is because of Jesus they are now reconciled. Isn't that, I mean, that's ultimately what Jesus is about. 
Now, granted, it's not the same kind of reconciliation that we're usually talking about, but it is, it is reconciliation between enemies brought about by Jesus himself. Pilate then calls together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. So they had, they had wandered, they called them together, and this, the, the text or the, the commentators note here that he had to call them together. He like calls them back. So remember, Jesus had gone to Herod and had like the, a bunch of guys going with him, accusing him. And at some point, this, perhaps it, it's in this window, the Sanhedrin wander off and they go back to the temple where who comes back with his bag of dirty money? Judas. Remember Judas? Comes, he, had the, he had the 30 pieces of silver. He felt bad. He didn't like the way this was going. He, he, tries to, he tries to undo what he had done. He throws the money down there at the temple and they say, no, we don't want your dirty money. And then he goes off, unfortunately, and hangs himself. And then, he, then, they, then they get called back. So they, they have that interaction with, it's, pro, it's probably in that window. Then they go back. Pilate calls them together. Uh, and the people. So this phrase, the people, has been used for those who think favorably of Jesus. So already in the last couple of chapters, the pe- it's the same, the same word. The, the people were there at the triumphal entry. And it's the people who were there at the, when Jesus is teaching in the temple. And they didn't arrest him there because they feared the people. So this like, the, the, very often this phrase, the people is associated with the crowds. And different commentators go different ways on this. Well, some would say, we can see how the same people who are expecting Jesus to be the Messiah on triumphal entry on Palm Sunday end up turning on Jesus on Good Friday because he wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. Others, notable like Lutheran scholars would be like Paul Meyer and others would, would say that no, obviously not. It was a totally different crowd. Or yet instig- instigators among the crowd who are, who are inciting this rebellion. I prefer the former argument that it's the, you see this flip that happens because the people were expecting Jesus to be a Messiah on their terms. And then when he wasn't, they kind of turn on Jesus and they're instigated by the, by the Sanhedrin. And he says, verse 14, you brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. So he's declared him innocent then a second time. He is innocent, and yet we find that he is going to be crucified as one who is guilty. He receives the punishment for the guilty, as the guilty. And in contrast, we who are guilty receive the benefit of one who is set free, who is in fact innocent. So we see this flip that occurs, this swap. Um, And there's a, again, a note on here about uh, so in your handout, um, letter C, Jesus is, in, in, Jesus is innocent, yet suffers as guilty. Our sin was imputed to him and his righteousness imputed to us. So this, this is a big Lutheran word, uh, justification or forensic justification. This idea that Jesus is not guilty. It's very important that we maintain the innocence of Jesus. He did not do sin because he couldn't sin as God. And yet he who knew no sin became sin. So, but he didn't do it by actually sinning in the same way that we become righteous, not by not sinning. (laughs) Don't don't work that out. (laughs) So we become innocent in the same way that he becomes guilty. It's imputed, it's given. 
So the, court, the, the, the classic Lutheran picture is this forensic is courtroom language. It's the, it's the, when the judge says guilty, you're guilty and you suffer the, punish, the punishment of the guilty, even if you happen to be innocent. Same with not guilty. The not guilty verdict can't be tried twice for the same crime, right? That's so, so when you're, when you're declared not guilty, you're not guilty even if you are. And so it is for us. So we are declared righteous, and Jesus is declared, right, is declared in, uh, sinful. So he suffers, and we're set free. Um, I do not find this man guilty. That's the second time Pilate uh, says he's innocent. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Interesting. So he says a second time, there's, he's, he, this man is innocent of the charges. Herod didn't see anything worthy of death, and therefore, I'm going to punish him. What? How's and, and it's not just like a slap on the wrist. Um, Albert. Alfred Edersheim is this Jewish convert to Christianity, wrote this book, The Life and Times of Jewish, uh, Jesus the Messiah. And a, a famous historian from like the early, early 20th century that kind of goes through all these things from the Jewish perspective and then what, what scourging would have been. And I think um, The Passion of the Christ does a pretty accurate portrayal of what this would have been. So not just like, the, not just like whipping, but it was an intentional effort to to rip the flesh off of the individual so that most of those who were scourged ended up dying. It was, this, was like, this was meant to be the pre-death. They scourged them toward crucifixion. It's the ultimate terrible t- torture. And, and the Romans were masterful at it. So, there, so don't think that, you know, Pilate, he's a pretty innocent guy. He's a nice guy. He tried to get Jesus off the hook. He had him scourged. No. He's, he's, still, he's still got his hands dirty in this. So um, I think there's a note on your handout here. Yeah, D. The, yes, John. So what's nice about the Lutheran church is we don't take a position on, so we confess. Well, so the, the Lutheran position would be whatever God's word says, John. That's the, that's the position of the Lutheran church. So any kind of speculation beyond that is just that, speculation. Did Pilate convert? It, it, seems, as pretty, it seems pretty clear that he did not. So it's, is it uh, Pilate who ends up dying? I think Acts talks about him um, later in negative terms. Um, so so the, the, there's, no, there's not a position of the Missouri. You guys, should, it's important to me that you know this. The, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's position is always, what does the scripture say? And then, so you'll say to me, well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, does the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod have a position on transgenderism? Jesus doesn't talk about transgenderism. Ah, yes, he does. Right? Man and woman, he created them. He upholds marriage. So, so we, we return to the scriptures where we get our, our position is there, right, on, on those type issues. Um, but then, yeah, we're free to speculate. So, I mean, it, yeah, certainly. Is it, is it possible? I, unless, unless I can think of a specific verse where um, in Acts, because it would be in Acts 
where it specifically condemns or talks about Pilate as condemned, as it does for Judas, for example. Um, I think it's, it's fair to hold out hope that the Lord could have worked, worked faith in Pilate, um, but we just don't know. Good, good question. Thank you for that. Uh, letter D on the handout. Though he had pronounced Jesus to be innocent twice, he still hasn't punished. Pilate doesn't believe in Jesus, isn't threatened by Jesus, and still allows his mockery and abuse. Still today, Jesus is openly mocked, allowing suffering in contrast to the other gods of this world. Why does Jesus allow such mockery and suffering in contrast to other gods? Um, if you're familiar, as I'm sure most of you are, with the, uh, the, um, the elite instrumental artist Lil Nas. <laughs> so recently came out, anybody here, have you followed the news on this? Like the recent, the most recent, um, where he, he basically, he says, I'm not trying to make fun of Jesus. Oh, that's okay. Like you can say you're not gonna make fun of Jesus, but if you actually make fun of Jesus in the thing that you're doing, you're making fun of Jesus. I don't care what you say. So he's openly just bad blasphemy, mocking the crucifixion of Jesus, uh, mocking Jesus himself, even kind of impersonating Jesus. I mean, in, of all the things, to, to mock the crucifixion itself, oh, not good. You know how many Christians have lined up at little Naz's front door to kill him? Let's play pretend to be Muslim for a moment. Back in the, I think, early 2000s, there was, a, I think, a French journalist who had a cartoon critiquing Muhammad, beheaded. So there's not a lot of interest in the, in the media of going after Muslims, right? Because they, they end up killing you, just like their God tells them to do it. But with Christianity, it's interesting. We have a Lord who turns the other cheek, who allows himself to be beaten, who comes in weakness and allows suffering, and in fact, works through suffering to bring about good. And so Jesus himself here is being mocked and allowing it, and he continues to allow it to this day. I remember in, um, this is back, like my man, first or second year being a pastor. This is, so I, I mark, that Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live ceased to be funny at the exit of Will Ferrell. So when he left Saturday Night Live, I mean, he certainly questionable moral character and so forth. My point is he's funny. And when he left Saturday Night Live, it was no longer funny in my opinion. But there was something in like 2015, they were like, it was like the Passion of the Christ too. Ironically, they're coming out with the Passion of the Christ too to focus on the resurrection. But back then it was like making fun of Jesus. He's like, he's back and he's ticked. And it's Jesus with like an M16 and he's like mowing people down. Like, ha, 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 ha. It's not funny the way that you mock Jesus being violent and angry after the, ha, 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 ha. No, we don't feel that way. But none of us stormed NBC because Jesus allows suffering. He's spit upon, right? Um, it's tragic, and we pray for, ultimately we pray for faith and repentance in those who would be mocking our Lord and Savior, right? But it's different than this, like, violence that would come from us. If anyone, if anyone is going to allow himself to be mocked, it is the Lord Jesus. Um, just, just something interesting of note there. You don't, see, you don't see this, like, clear, overarching media attempt to mock, like, Hinduism, which is so mockable, 
There's so many, to have all this multiplicity of gods that look really funny and do weird, weird things. Or, or, or Muhammad, Muhammad himself is like, it's, like a, it's, it's very similar to Joseph Smith and the Mormon story. And there's so many things in that story that are just begging to be ridiculed. And yet no one does it because they all act through violence and strength and power in contrast to the, the true Jesus. Um, we have five minutes here. So I think we can get to the crucifixion. Unless, any questions to address on that regarding the suffering of Jesus? So we, um, just, a, just a note to our Christian life. We do, as in our Christian life, we will suffer at times um, persecution for the gospel. That is for being faithful to Jesus. There is suffering that goes along with that. And to that, the Christian, just like in the first century, can say joyfully, amen. What, what more joyful thing than to be persecuted in the same way as my Lord Jesus? Now, it's a different, you'll say to me, well, what if, should I, can I defend myself? Or can I defend my neighbor? Can I defend my child? The answer is yes. Obviously, this is this tricky ethical dilemma you find yourself in when they're, when they're trying to like, kill your child and you're trying to defend your child, Right? So, and you should, right? But, um, but also we recognize that there is persecution for those who follow the persecuted one. They, they crucified him. Aren't they gonna go after you in the same way for being faithful? Um, so we, our prayer is that we would A, not be persecuted in that way, but then B, if we ever were, that we would be given the strength to confess boldly um, unto, unto even death if it came to that. So um, tw- verse 18 but they all cried out together away with this man and released to us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas in the Aramaic, it means son of the father. We talked about this before, Bar, like Simon Bar-Jonas, Simon, son of Jonah, Abba, father. So he's his, built into his name. Some even argue that wasn't even his name. That was like what he was known by. He was claiming to be the son of the father. He was claiming to be a messianic figure and he was doing it by way of power. And he had tried to bring about an insurrection in a, in a way of violence. Um, and, and yet away with us, released to us Barabbas. And, and Pilate, like, he thinks he's going to win over the crowd. Now, imagine this. So the crowd knows that Barabbas is guilty. He's a known criminal, violent, insurrection-creating criminal. And so if you're the crowd there, and that guy's totally innocent. That guy's a, a violent criminal. Pilate thinks he's going to appease the crowds by giving us the, the known violent criminal. It's illogical. And yet, that's just what he does. And it seems to appease the people. So if you're in their shoes, like, okay, there's a, here's a known mass killer and rapist and all the, all the bad things. And here's a guy who's, who said that he's the son of God. But he actually hasn't even said it at this point. He's accused of saying these things. And you're like, give us the guy who we know does bad stuff. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, this is, what, this is what's going on. Uh, verse 19, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So remember the, the concept of insurrection as being a thief of trying to steal um, social, uh, social power and, and status. That's why they're called th- later when you got the thieves who are crucified with Jesus on the cross. Um, they're, we think the thieves on the cross, but it's the same word. Um, for these insurrectionists. So the idea of stealing social power. Timely to have insurrectionists be, uh, (laughs) 
I won't push on that too much. <laughs> Verse 20, Pilate, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. Um, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. So this is the first time things went from like, they were pushing for Jesus to be like, like judged, arrested, beaten, but they haven't actually said these words yet. Now all of a sudden, crucify him. So things went from like, okay, this, this crowd's kind of getting out of control to now they're actually calling for arguably the worst, the worst torturous death in all the history of mankind. They, and they're calling for it. And crucifixion, I've got some notes on this. Crucifixion is so horrific a death that it was illegal to give it to Roman citizens. It's tr- I mean, just, and they're asking for this. And so I, I, you get the sense that Pilate wasn't like anxious to do this. And so he says a third time, why? What evil has he done? I found no guilt deserving death, especially not that kind of crucifixion. What's wrong with you people? So a third time, then he says, I will therefore, again, he says, I will therefore punish and release him. Again, willing to, willing to uh, punish. And he does, in fact, as we know from the other text, he has, him, has him be scourged and brings back in front of them, beaten down, bloodied, a step away from death already. And that's when he famously says, behold the man. Um, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries. So we have the, the power yelling into the weakness of Jesus, trying to overwhelm weakness with strength. We still see that same approach today, demanding with loud cries that he shall be crucified and their voices prevailed. That is, Pilate proved to be a coward. Um, why, so why, why would he, so you think about the, the action, the mind of Pilate, but why would he care? So Pilate is not a Christian, at least yet as John pointed out. So we, we have the false gods of the Roman deity and, and the Greek, the, both the Greek and the Roman gods. They are after self-preservation and self-indulgence like, um, at the expense of others. So for Pilate to say, all right, um, I need to do the right thing here. For him, what is the right thing is defined by what his gods are doing. What do the gods do? Whatever they got to do to extend their own lives and gain more power and prestige. So for him to actually say, all right, take him and crucify him, that's actually, he's being, at least he's being consistent with what his gods do. We think about your minimal experience maybe with the Greek gods of like Zeus and Minerva and Poseidon, the way they, the way they treat each other and the way they handle things, the violence, the power, it's all about self self-preservation and, and such. So it's pretty consistent to see him do that. Pilate decided their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The, the innocent are released, or the guilty are released for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will, they being the, the crowds there. And um, the same, see, Oh yeah, delivered, delivered Jesus is the same Greek for when Jesus, or when Judas handed Jesus over earlier. So uh, he does the same thing as Judas does. And then ultimately Pontius Pilate is the one, even though Pontius doesn't nail, the, nail his hands into the cross, he's the one who hands Jesus over the will, which is why we confess and decree that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. So he, get, he, gets, the, he gets the credit for this. So the next, uh, next week, we'll jump, we'll get right into the crucifixion proper. Any, any comments or questions on that?
Very good. The Lord be with you.